Well, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 that we're going to read here at the top. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, that's, that's fine. The words will be up on the screen for you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Well, a few, few Sundays back, we began this series that we're in that we're calling Identity through the book of Ephesians. And what we said when we kicked the series off is that the book of Ephesians really is quite unique when it comes to the different letters that the Apostle Paul in particular wrote to the churches of that time. It's unique because the book of Ephesians was the only church that he wrote without a specific heresy or problem in the church in mind. And so as a result, he got to just pull out all the stops and just take us to great heights. And so if you were here with us as we kicked that off in the first part of chapter one, you saw that it says, praise be to God and Father for, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. So we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We said it this way, every joy, every benefit that your heart or soul could ever need or long for, we have available to us, already given to us, in Christ. And then Nick, the week after, so awesomely showed up as a guest speaker and talked about the Holy Spirit. That was one of the promises in that chapter. So we see these wonderful promises that God has given us in Christ. And so that's Ephesians 1, and it's as if he had taken us into the clouds there. Well, with Ephesians 2, he takes us into the stratosphere. Because here in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, we have perhaps the most compact, rich, and, cons and concise articulation of the gospel of Jesus, of the good news of Jesus. It's just incredible. And actually, by the way, as a, as a little side note, if you have ever been into memorization, or have you ever thought about it, or if you actually haven't even ever thought about it, I'd encourage you to think about memorizing actually our, our text today, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. It is so rich. And if you think 10 verses is a lot, it's not. You can do it. Uh, and if you're somebody who needs like kind of a time frame to help you, try to do it by next Sunday. That'll give you two verses a day and still some room to do it. But the reason I say that is scripture memorization is wonderful. It helps the Christian meditate. Okay, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Meditation in the Christian faith is not emptying ourselves of things. It's actually filling ourselves with God and his, and his scripture and his word and who, he's, who he is and what he's about. And so it's filling us with scripture and thinking about it. And so today we can't plumb the depths of Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. There's just no way. Uh, that's why this is such a wonderful uh, text that if you feel so inclined, you can, you can memorize and encourage you to. But here what we see in, these, in this wonderful, concise uh, statement is a sweeping, really cosmic look at the gospel. 
we see uh, in particular what we're going to look at is the, the gospel itself, what it is as Ephesians 2 breaks it down, how to get it and what it means for us. So what the gospel is, how we get it, and what difference it ought to make in our lives. So first, let's consider what this gospel is in Ephesians uh, 2. So Paul begins by saying, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Uh, he's saying to Christians, you need to have a sober understanding of your nature apart from God. And that nature is you were dead in your transgressions. Have you ever seen a cadaver? You know, I know we have some uh, doctors in our midst. Uh, my brother is a surgeon, and he said in medical school, when he first started to learn to operate, you know, you go into these rooms and, and, and there'd be all these cadavers. And he said it was the most surreal experience. Like he just, I mean, eventually, you know, you just do it so much, you get, you get kind of over it. But he was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it for the longest time. But here were all these, you know, cadavers, just dead bodies and just completely inanimate. It's just, it was just unlike anything he had ever experienced. And what Paul is trying to convey is we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Just, it was final. Uh, there, was, there was no way out of it, just dead. Now, we may wonder, well, what does that mean? Because Paul's talking to Christians. Does that mean before we become Christian, we're walking around dead? Like, what, like, what, like how, do, how do we get our heads around that? Like, what, what does that mean? Well, when the scriptures talk about death, as it does here in this case, it talks about a different kind of death that is just as final that we need to get, get our heads around. So in Romans uh, 6, verse 23, Paul put it this way. The wages of sin is death. There's no place in the scriptures where it says, if you sin, just kind of generally speaking, then you're just going to keel over and die. That's not what it's saying. But So the wages of sin is death. What, what does that mean? It's saying that when, when we sin, there is a separation that happens. Or if you will, there's a spiritual death that occurs. It's kind of like that cadaver thought I, I mentioned earlier. Like whenever you see one like that, uh, say in a funeral home or whatever it might be, you, you, you understand that there's been a separation that has occurred, whether it's the personality from the body and, and so on. And Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our transgressions and sin. Well, it goes on in verse 3 to talk about what, this trans what these transgressions and sins really are. It gives some color to this. It talks about how it was us gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Uh, this word uh, sin that Paul is using is, is, is helpful to kind of uh, break down and understand. In the Greek, it's this word hamartia. Okay, and uh, when I was in uh, college, I actually took my uh, Greek in at, at Cal. So I didn't actually do my Greek in seminary, which is the more traditional uh, pastor route, um, just for a number of reasons. It was a cool opportunity for me. So I took it at Cal, which is to say, I had a non-Christian professor teaching teaching me Greek. And so how it worked is the, this professor would spend most of the time focusing on like grammar and all that sort of stuff to teach the language, and every so often pull out a couple of words of the hundreds of words we were learning a week just to kind of highlight it, okay? Well, one week he highlighted hamartia, non-Christian professor highlighting this, this word. I was talking to my dad about it later, and he was saying, you know, I think it's because he knows there's a few of you in that class who are non-classics majors, probably there to learn the Bible. So he kind of pulled this out. He said, hamartia is a helpful word because it's a, it's a term from archery. Okay, so back in the day in, in Greek ancient society, that was, archery was kind of a big deal. It's this whole idea the the archer kind of takes aim and misses the mark. That's the idea. And so he spent time talking about how, yeah, hamartia really is this really interesting, rich word to talk about how we miss the mark. And so Paul is adopting this concept spiritually to say, 
sin is when we miss the mark of what God has intended for us, uh, what, what he has designed us for. Uh, we've, we've missed the mark. Uh, some may have wondered, as I did when I first read this text uh, many, many decades ago, when, uh, a few decades ago, when it says the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, we've been following this ruler of the kingdom of the air, become disobedient. Uh, when I first read that, I thought, okay, that's, that's some vague reference to the devil, certainly. Okay. But what does this mean? How is he, how is he doing this? Is it, is it like he's looking over his shoulder like the movies teach, teach that like, there's just a cartoon figure saying, oh, you got you to gotta sin, and, 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 it's, and it's us just giving in? Well, not exactly. Uh, the Garden of Eden gives us a lot of insight into what Paul is talking about here in our text in Ephesians 2. Because when the devil came to Adam and Eve and said, hey, look at that tree over there. You just got to get some of that fruit. It's just too good to miss. You know, it's like, what, what was going on there? Like, what, what was going on? It wasn't just about the fruit. God had created them to be in a, in a perfect personal relationship with himself. Placed them there in the garden and was in a perfect personal relationship where they got to love him in a personal, uh, in, in, in his presence way, and they got to be loved by him and experience that. But God, in the midst of all of that, very famously, also put a tree there that he called of the tree of good and evil. And he said, you must not eat from that because the day you eat of that, quote, you will surely die. And so why was this all, ha like, how was that a temptation from the devil? Why is that, why was it happening that way? I'm often asked the question, often it's in our alpha classes, actually, our, our classes that explore the Christian faith. Why is it that God put a tree in there that he said, don't eat of, uh, if, if he knew that people were going to just go ahead and eat that? It's like, that's kind of messed up, right? But if you think about it, it's actually, it was actually a very loving thing for God to have done. Because in putting that tree there and saying, don't eat that, he was saying, you have a choice of loving me. Because in order to have a choice of loving, you, also, you must also have a choice not to love me. And he didn't want us to in any way understand our love as something being co coerced out of us or kind of robotically coming out of us. He wanted us to be able to choose. No, I'm, we're, we're choosing you. And so actually when the devil came to them and said, hey, you should eat of that tree. Doesn't it look good? He wasn't just saying the, the food is nice. It's enticing in that sense. He was saying, yeah, God has provided for you. Uh, surely you, you, you see that he's, he's made you and he's placed you in this, this place. Okay, there's some nice things there, but really he's withholding from you. Really, uh, you, what you need to do here is, is not choose him. You need to go ahead and choose yourself. And so they chose themselves and they, they chose, well, okay, we want to eat of this tree. The, the fruit looks good. Let's go ahead and do that. And the minute they did that, they started experiencing the effects of sin, I mean, even in that first story, you already see guilt and shame and all the rest of it. God showed up and said, well, what have you done? And they tried to like blame each other and all the rest of it. And he said, because you've done this, I must cast you out. And that's really what it meant then and when Paul uses the word now of death. On the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Adam and Eve didn't just keel over there right on the spot. They were cast out. And not just from the garden, really, truly, ultimately, they were cast out from God's presence. And so they began to feel the effects of sin in the world. And that's what we feel when we commit to these things, when we miss the mark. And what Paul is helping us understand when he says we are dead in our sin is this saying that, man, we, we're really missing the mark. I mean, he says so much to, to go on to say that we are deserving of God's wrath. Now, when you think of God's wrath, I mean, how do you feel when you, when you hear that phrase? 
If you're like me, you're just like, man, that's an intense, it's an intense thought. God's wrath. I was reading uh, this uh, in, in my study, uh, one of the Bible scholars who was talking about God's wrath, and he had this insight. He said, you know what? It really, you know, most of us, when we think about God's wrath, we think, man, that's, that's this big, intense, scary, heavy thing. And to be sure, he said, that's certainly the case. But you know what? God's wrath is actually something to be very thankful for, grateful for. What do you mean by that? Well, God's wrath ultimately is due to his righteousness, his righteous anger, his anger towards sin in the world. And man, we don't have to be in the times that we're in right now to know that sin is just active in the world. There's just so much junk in the world that is painful and bringing just utter brokenness to so many people. And God can't stand the sin in the world. He can't stand the political evil, the oppression, all these sorts of things. But he also can't stand when we hurt our roommate or hurt our spouse or mistreat our kids or just do any number of things that really kind of strike home. And we're, des- we're deserving of God's wrath, his righteous anger. I did this really interesting uh, assignment. I was a political science major at Cal. Uh, that I really didn't want to do at first. You know how you get assigned this big project? It's like the big class project you get, and you're like, ah, oh, I don't want to do this. In the end, after it was all done, I was like, oh, that was a cool project. But it was this whole idea of like learning that politics isn't just something that happens in government. Poli-Sci 101, okay? Uh, po- politics really is, is, is really the dynamics of power. So you don't need a government to understand that. So the whole assignment was everybody got like a street address in the Berkeley or Oakland area that you had a little radius you could go out from, find some sort of organization or community of people, churches were included, and just find out like the different elements that are happening, kind of the, that dynamics. And one of the big things all of us learn real quickly is how, man, people are jacked up. And there's all these power dynamics, and they happen in, it happens in everywhere there are people. You know, school boards, uh, little league teams. Uh, for me, it was, it was a lifeguard pool. Um, I, we're laughing about it, but I can tell you, I, man, I saw some stuff. You know, and it's like, man, there's so much. In, the, the whole point, the Bible overwhelmingly is just trying to help us understand is sin is not just over there in those institutions, which it is. It's everywhere because it's in each and every one of us. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. We missed the mark by a wide margin, deserving of God's righteous anger. That was our nature, he says in verse 3. We're fallen, broken people. And then we have verse 4. So we have, you know, we were dead in our transgressions and sin. We have this idea that we were disobedient, rebellious, We have this idea that we're deserving of God's wrath. And then we have these wonderful words in verse 4. But God. Now, in our English translation that we're working with today in the NIV, it says, but because of God's... Now, that's true. It's a good translation. But in the original Greek language, it's but God. Hodethios. I mean, you can even hear it. He's just, but God. God is in the midst of saying, I'm not going to let it stay there. I'm going to do something about it. He is going to do something, has done something about it. But God, hode theos, which really actually, you know, even before kind of breaking down what the sentence goes on to say, tells us so much about the gospel. Because the first words of the scriptures are, in the beginning, God. 
and then you have this much text, more or less, of us doing our thing apart from him. But then you have Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, oh, de Dios, what precious words. But God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. I know I'm talking a lot about the grammar and the Greek today, but I think, I think it's helpful to point out one more thing here. This really, gram- grammatically speaking, that we don't quite get the force of in our, in our English, is Paul's thrust. This is really the heart. The verb here is what he's crescendoing to in this whole text. God has made us alive in Christ. It's pretty cool to read about the different miracles in the scriptures. I mean, you just take Jesus, right? How he turned water into wine, how he walked on the water, how he calmed the raging sea, how he even, you know, raised Lazarus from the dead, raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Those are pretty incredible miracles if we start to think about that, if we believe that that truly happened. Well, what Paul is saying here in this text, when he said God made us alive in Christ, he's saying he has done something infinitely more miraculous than any of those miracles. Like, it's incomparable. You cannot compare. Like, this miracle that God has done is just the the, the most amazing. When he has made you alive in Christ, because that's nothing short of a resurrection miracle. When you put your faith in Jesus, that is the miracle of all miracles. You've been brought back into life. You've been made alive in Christ. You know what the scriptures tell us? They tell us, and we talk about this often when we do baptisms, that when someone puts their faith in Christ, when they, when, they rece- when they become a Christian, the angels in heaven are throwing a party, essentially. They're just celebrating. We're not told a whole lot about what the angels are doing in heaven, but we are told that when somebody becomes a Christian, they are going bonkers. They're watching for it. They're paying attention for that of all the things they probably could be paying attention. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a miraculous, it's the miracle of all miracles. You've been made alive. God has made you alive in Christ. You were dead, but God, because of his great love, you made you alive with Christ. He goes on, verse six, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. This is just incredible. It's like, man, if we just stopped at being made alive in Christ, uh, we'd, we'd be good. But Paul goes on, it's like, no, no, it's, just wait. He has also raised us up with Christ in the heavenly realms, seated us uh, with him. In other words, he's given us the, the same glory that he's given us his son, the son of God. C.S. Lewis, a uh, Christian author, former atheist, uh, in one of his works talks about how this thought is just incredible. If we just get our minds around this. He's like, we just look around and we see life as it is, the material, and we see our, you know, our, all the struggles and there's ups and downs or whatever. But if we think about it in, in the spiritual realms as, as God sees it, God looks at those who are in Christ and it's as if they are just glowing a vibrant white. Just they are, they are clothed in white, sparkling white. And we don't get our minds around that. We just kind of focus on, oh, I'm not. But God has raised us up with Christ. And by the way, notice that wording there. It doesn't say he raised us up in Christ, although that's also certainly true. It's through Christ's work. He he raised us up with Christ, meaning in a similar way, same as he did with Jesus. Together with him, we receive his glory. It's like, wow. And then in verse 5, he says something that he repeats really three times throughout this text. It is by grace you have been saved. 
Uh, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey describes how there was a conference on comparative religion at one point, and they were debating on what was unique about Christianity. If you've read the book, you might be familiar with the story. And uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis happened to be walking by. Everybody's trying to figure out well, what's unique about Christianity. And there's the, the debate was going back and forth. And someone saw C.S. Lewis and said, hey, what, what do you think? He said, that's easy. It's grace. I mean, this idea of grace is absolutely revolutionary. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a length of time, chances are, I'm guilty of this, you take grace for granted. I mean, grace is revolutionary. I mean, at one point, uh, Yancey says it this way, grace seems to go against every instinct of humanity. How's that? Well, we're just naturally drawn to contracts, covenants, you know, cause and effect type relationships, earning what we receive. That's a lot of how we go about life. But grace interrupts that. Grace, quite foundationally, is unmerited favor from God. It's unconditional love from him. Uh, U2's Bono uh, put it this way, grace defies reason and logic. He said, it's love interrupting, if you like, the consequences of your action. Uh, back when I was a little bit more active on Facebook, I, I put this up there. I think it's still up there, but grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. I love how he's saying earlier, uh, when all I see are the ashes, you see the beauty. Uh, that's grace. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. And you know, the reality is I have any number of friends, both outside and inside the church, whether consciously or functionally speaking, they don't see Christianity operating that way. They see it as, well, I just got to, I got to, it's about doing good things, is it not? Or it's about me doing a good thing, and, and provided I'm having a good week this week, then, then I'm good, right? And it's like, Paul's saying, no, 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 you were dead <laughs> apart from Christ. God has made you alive. He has made you alive. And it, it's just an utter, unmerited uh, favor of, 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 of love that he has done for you. That's the gospel. But God, Right? made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our, our sins, and has raised us with Christ, all because of grace. That's the gospel. How do we get it? I uh, hear, man, this verse alone is worth memorizing. If you don't, try to do all 10 verses. But these two verses alone are just amazing. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So how do we get it? Of course, we get it by faith, by faith. I imagine many of you know the Latin phrase sola fide. Uh, it's an incredibly important phrase uh, that's had a big impact on human history. When you go back to Luther and, and the Reformation, sola fide, by faith alone. It's this incredible thought that we are saved by faith. Well, saved, what does that mean? Brought back into a right relationship with God. Solo fide, sola gratia is the other one. By grace alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. Not by works, Paul emphasized, lest anyone can boast. Meaning we can never say, well, it's just about me going to church or saying my prayers or having done this or that. But utterly and completely because of what God has done, the unmerited favor of him giving us this gift. So do we see this cosmic breathtaking picture of the gospel here? And how we receive, it's, it's God through and through. God brought us into existence 
And then when we rebelled against him, in no small way, he made us alive in Christ, pursued us. And not only that, raised us up with him, giving us the same glory with Christ. It's incredible. That's the gospel. That's how we get it. All right, so what? What does this mean? Okay, this is a very rich paragraph of theology or doctrine. What does it mean for our lives? Now, the implications are never-ending, so you can work that through on your own. Maybe the Holy Spirit's already speaking to you in terms of what this means for you. But let me suggest four takeaways for us today in terms of the implications, what difference it ought to have in our lives. Implication number one, receive it. <laughs> if you've never received it before, it's what, this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Uh, our little one, uh, Maddie, turned eight yesterday, and we had a birthday party. I say little one. She's not, not as little. She'll always be little for me. Yeah. Um, she turned eight yesterday, and she was insistent she wanted a birthday party over a present from Daddy and Mommy which is kind of a big deal. I always picked the present as a, as a kid. But anyway, she, but that's little Maddie. She just wants to be around people. And I had one, uh, uh, another parent say, Maddie actually chose kind of wisely there because everybody brings presents. So you get some presents. Like she wasn't calculating any of that, right? But she just wanted to be around people. And people would bring these presents. You know, they're all wrapped up. And our little Maddie, being Maddie, would just go, oh, thank you, thank you. I love it. I love it. She doesn't even know what it is. It's like, oh, I love it. And uh, man, you you know what she's doing in that instance. You know, in her way, she's saying, man, thank you so much for thinking of me. And, you know, I just want you to know I love you for loving me. Like, I just, all that's just happening in that interaction. And she didn't even know what it was. God has given us everything in Christ. He has done a resurrection miracle and raised us up. Again, we talked about this the first sermon, but a little recap. Past tense. It'll be consummated in the next life when Jesus returns. It'll be wonderful. But past tense already has, has taken place. God has already done that. And, and how do you receive it? By faith. Nothing you can do. If you're here today, you've never received what Jesus has done for you. That's how you get it. You receive it like a gift. Thank you. I don't deserve this. I ask that you forgive my sins. I commit my life to you. You receive it. Uh, second takeaway, uh, be humble. Be humble. Remember, Paul here says you are dead in your sins and transgressions. Be humble. I have a pastor friend who likes to say Christians need to do a better job of putting down their binoculars and picking up a mirror. And what I think he means by that is Christians, and really all people, but Christians need to especially be thinking about this, need to put down their Ways of just like seeing what's wrong in other people, fixating on, on those things, and actually remember that the gospel calls us not so much to do that, but to say, no, 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 what does this mean for me? How is this impacting me? Because we are not sinful in some small way. We are exceedingly missing the mark. And that's God's amazing love as he meets us right there. So we must be humble. Must be humble when our spouse or roommate misses the mark when our boss who we're just misses the mark got to be humble uh, third takeaway with God's help we need to turn from the cravings of the flesh because remember Paul says here in verses two and five he says you used to live this way all of us lived that way first of all I love that Paul is putting himself in that all of us, including me, as I write this, as the Apostle Paul. Paul was dead in his transgressions apart from Christ. That's his nature. It's all of our nature. 
That's the be humble thought. But he says, we used to live this way. Now, does that mean when we put our faith in Jesus, we all of a sudden snap our fingers and we live perfectly? Of course not. But it does mean in humility and with God's help, we begin to try to turn from those cravings and turn to him, looking to him. And if you were in the current groups last week, uh, hopefully this is a bit of a refresher, but it's also wonderful because we realize the motivation here is not fear. It's not it's not, oh, God's going to like zap us or get upset or make our life, you know, it's like just go full bore punishment mode if we mess up. That's, that's not how it works. It's because of his love for us. We're motivated by love. We're just saying, we're saying, thank you, God. I just want to do this because I already know you've extended grace to me. So we try our best to turn from our cravings with God's help. And then fourth takeaway, last but not least, we need to look to activate. Are you, li- are you living... To activate for God's kingdom. Are you looking to put his kingdom first? And we see this in the last verse that we haven't actually read yet. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, real quickly, because I just think this uh, theological statement kind of brings up a lot of stuff to just kind of hit it. Which is it? Are we saved by faith or by works? Right? What's he saying here? Is it faith by works? And if you know the debate that happens in, in religious circles, uh, you know that the, another author, James, in his book really emphasizes, uh, we must not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And, and faith without actions is dead. So which is it? Faith, are we saved by faith or by works? And the answer, Paul, I mean, Paul breaks it down here in these three verses. We are saved by faith unto works. We are not saved by works, but we are saved by faith in order to do good works. Or let's take from Jesus. He said it, this cuts through it all. You will know the tree by its fruit. Meaning, if we understand what God has done for us in this text, we're only two chapters into Ephesians, and at that, half of chapter two. If we understand this is what God has done for us through Christ, how can we not live for him, or at least look to live for him? That, that's the statement. And if we're not, the, Paul's asking, are we? Do, have we received? Do we believe? Because it's just one of those things where, man, if God has done this, we've got to look to activate. So are you looking to activate? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, of course, it's going to look a little different for, for each of us. Uh, but let me close with a story, um, a story that I actually haven't shared in, in a number of years now. So some of you who've been with us from the beginning, you, you probably remember this. But um, uh, a part of our life that really impacted uh, both Cindy and me, is, of course, was when her dad passed away. Her dad... Uh, got uh, late-stage non-smoking cancer when he was 60 and passed away at 63. We were actually really grateful for, for the extra three years there. Uh, we weren't anticipating. Uh, he put his faith in Jesus. Uh, he really actually began to activate living for God. And we went down to the memorial service, which was in San Diego, came down from the Bay Area. And it was a wonderful time. I mean, you know, it was, it was heavy and all that, but it was a wonderful time in the sense of, I mean, there's probably over 500 people who filled that church building auditorium, most of whom weren't Christian or at least identified as such. And they got to hear basically a gospel presentation and Bob or, or, or Michael give his testimony that was recorded. You know, just, they, got to, they got to hear all of these things. And so it was just a wonderful time. But we were driving back from that and we were driving through the Camp Pendleton area. So for those of you guys who know the I-5, uh, we were driving through that area. And I'll, I'll never forget, we had been driving silently for a while. And Cindy just said out of nowhere, she said, man, I realize that I'm, I'm now exactly half the age that my dad was when he passed away. Exactly half the age. 
and kept driving for a little bit. And then she said, I don't, I don't want to waste this life. Like, I want to I I live it for the Lord. And I look back at that time, and uh, just kind of a fun story to share with you guys. I, I, I can't help but think the Lord planted some seeds for current, actually, in that moment. A, a Bible verse that has meant a lot to me for many years, and it was just emphasized in that moment, was uh, Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, uh, let us, te- uh, uh, oh man, sorry to remember on the spot. Teach us to number our days aright that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days aright that we might gain a heart of wisdom. The whole idea there is just like life is precious, life is short, and how can we live it for God? Because the, the beautiful promise here is God hasn't just made us alive in Christ, hasn't just raised us up with the glory of Christ, but he's also been thoughtfully thinking through your purpose in his plan of salvation. That's incredible. By the way, in verse 10, it talks about how we are God's worksmanship. That's actually poema. We're his poem. We're his work of art that he wants to use for the sake of helping people find eternal relationship with Christ. And so the question is, how can you be doing that? Look, we, we're praying for Ukraine this last, man, over a week now, and today, of course, in, in service. There are some, those missionary, missionaries we just referenced earlier today, Cindy prayed for and talked about, it's incredible. They are all deciding to stay there because they're basically thinking of it like Esther thought about it in, in the old scriptures of, we're here for such a time as this. Like, God's probably doing something, so we need to stay here. Now, does that mean you're going to have some drastic thought where you need to figure out how big life change for activating for God? That's not what we're saying, but it's, I think activating for God and his purpose in our life starts with the posture of, here I am, God, use me. Is God driving in your life? Is he, is he front and center? Are you looking to him? When you make big decisions, or you're thinking about outlook in life, when you're thinking about your career, when you're thinking about where you're going to live, when you think about family or not, like or advancement or not, are you? Is he? Is he front and center? Is he the one you're actually waiting to hear from? And if you're not hearing from him, you're thinking, okay, Lord, I, I think this is the direction you want me to go. Life is short, life is precious, but the things of God are eternal, and He wants to include you in that. By the way, we're so grateful for the many of you who are serving actively on Sundays in any number of ways. We're just doing communion with the kids team before service. It's like, man, you guys are raising up the next generation here. But in all these ways, as a church at least, we're trying to, our best as a community, in all the myriad of ways, try to do this. How can we do that as a church? There's ways to get plugged in. We'd love to have you involved. How can we do this out in the workplace, next to our, with our coworkers, out in the Little League field? Here I am, God, use me. Uh, let's pray. Father, it is, it is. We, we can't get our heads around it, our hearts around all that you've done for us in Christ. It's incredible to consider and think about. Oh, so Lord, my prayer is, would you let these truths sink in more deeply today for those who have chosen to follow you? Lord, may we never take grace for granted. Father, for those who are here who have not yet received you, I pray that today would be the day that they would decide, even now in their hearts with you, Jesus, I, I, I receive you by faith. I was living apart from you, and I want to turn to you. Would you help me do that? I commit my life to you. In fact, that's, if that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity as we take communion to act that out. 
Father, would you please help us as a church live with this gospel in mind in all that we do. We thank you that you're so gracious to us when we miss the mark more than we care to even recognize. Forgive us our sins. But thank you for making us alive in Christ, for seating us in the heavenly realms with him, and for preparing good works for us to do. Would you help us take this gospel and shine it brightly where you have us? We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.